Welcome everyone to Force of Nature Podcast. I'm your host, Matthew D. Hamilton, and I'm here with my co-host, David Botcher. Terrific. <laughs> this episode, we are going to talk about the longest race that is still happening. Uh, the last great race, the Iditarod. Nice. And we've talked about sled dogs uh, a few times before, so I thought it would be kind of cool to do a whole episode on not just the dogs, but all about the famous sled dog race. And uh, uh, it, it was uh, it was really fun to learn and to learn about the Iditarod. I really didn't know much going into it, but uh, it was a lot of fun to research and to learn about. And I hope everyone else, and Dave and all the listeners, and I hope everyone else will enjoy learning about it. Yeah. Uh, we hope everyone enjoyed our last episode, our 14th edition of Recent Animal Stories and Attacks. Those are always some yeah. of our favorites to do. They're a lot of fun. Yeah. And we covered a quite a few different stories, a couple deathy stories, some funny stories. We covered um, about hyenas killing a man. And we talked about wild dogs brutally mutilating a woman and a child. We talked about people being bit by venomous snakes in Australia, then a, a serial biting coyote, and then of course the the bear who like who spent its winter in an outhouse, and then the woman oh, yeah. went to went to go use the toilet, and the bear kind of scratched her butt. And... <laughs> Here, I'll wipe for you. <laughs> I'll wipe for you. <laughs> but yeah, go ahead. Uh, lots of good things on that one, so go ahead and check it out if you haven't yet. And then also, we did a little bonus episode where we learn all about pugs. Yeah. And Dave was in charge there, and he taught us all about pugs. And remember that they really don't have much of a use. Yeah. What we found out, they were they were lap dogs for the nobles. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So yeah, it's pretty interesting. So go check that one out too. All right, and as always, we are joined by everyone's favorite cheetah, Professor Cheetor. Gentlemen, I just want you and everyone to know I have gone to rehab and have finally kicked my truffle addiction completely. No more truffle storyline. Oh, good for you. Well, well, uh, that is good, Professor. We are very happy for you. And I'm, I'm also very happy that we are ending that segment. And <laughs> we're, we're going to move on to some other kind of storyline for Professor. Yeah, let's truffle to a different one. Uh, I mean, shuffle to a different one. <laughs> yeah, we'll figure out a new storyline for him later. Yeah. <laughs> but also, as always, we want to thank all of our listeners for tuning in to us. We've been doing really good lately. Uh, I know it's been a while. We've been very slow in putting episodes out, but we I, I plan on uh, getting a bunch more out sooner and quicker. We'll do at least two a month from here on out. Okay. Uh, hopefully, maybe more, a couple bonuses, but yeah, we'll, I promise we'll be doing that. And uh, if you enjoy the show, something you can do is go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, or whatever platform you use. Give us a review. Give us five stars. Say whatever you want. You can tell us what your favorite kind of sandwich is. It doesn't matter. Tell us. Let us know where you're from. Say what your favorite animal. That's a good one. Yeah, your, yeah. Let us know where you're from. Tell us your favorite animal. Say something, whatever you want. But it really helps the podcast gain more attention and gain more listeners. And, of course, we'll always give shout-outs to anybody who does that. Yeah. Kind of like this. Hi, I'm David Botcher. I'm from Utah, and I like eagles. <laughs> something like that. I'm perfect. <laughs> I, I'm, I like David, David Botcher. I like eagles. They fly. <laughs> <laughs> they go real high. They go high. <laughs> But yes, yeah, say whatever you want. But yeah, that would be cool to know. I like to learn people's favorite animals. Yeah. That's a lot of fun. But all right, what do you say we get going here, Let's Dave? Do it. All right. The most famous and largest sled dog race is the Iditarod. It first began its racing legacy in 1973 when the first official race took place. And the race follows the famous Iditarod Trail in Alaska. Uh, and it begins, uh, the, the race begins on the first Saturday in March from Anchorage to Nome. Mm. And it is a long race. And the distance changes, it kind of changes from year to year. And they, they modify it a little bit depending uh -huh. on weather conditions and what they want to do. But, uh, and I keep, I kept, I did keep getting different lengths from different sources. But it seems like the race likes to say it's 1,049 miles. Okay. That's what it sticks with. Uh, nice which, round number. <laughs> <laughs> well, the reason they do that is it, it honors Alaska as Alaska's status as the 49th state. Okay, okay. So uh, we will just go with what they say. We'll say 1,049 miles or uh, 1,688 kilometers. Okay. But the race this year was actually shortened. It was quite a bit shorter. Oh. Uh, it was uh, 860 miles this year. 
Oh, wow. Why did they do that? Uh, I think COVID played a factor and they didn't have as many racers because they didn't have uh, people from overseas come oh, and race. Okay. So that's pretty much the factor. But yeah. I'll, I'll talk more about this year's race later. And Dave, how long do you think it takes to complete a race like this? Oh my goodness, eight hundred sixty miles. Well, just, let's wow, just let's, let's just stick with the thousand forty-nine. Uh, let's see that. Uh, I'm guessing it will take them twenty days, maybe. <laughs> well, okay. Well, the 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 first winner in 1973 was named Dick Walmart Wilmarth, and it took him twenty days. Oh, sweet! Forty-nine minutes and forty-one seconds to complete it. Wow. Uh, the fastest time ever was in 2017 by Mitch Seavey. He did it in eight days. Oh, my goodness. Eight days, three hours, 40 minutes, and 13 seconds. I bet he took a train halfway with his dogs and then got <laughs> he off. hops on a bullet train. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, well, much, mushers are much faster nowadays Okay. Uh, Gee, than they used they to be. Cut off 13 or 12 days. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, and then it depends on weather conditions too. That's there's true. A, yeah. There's a whole lot of factors that depend on the time. Oh, yeah. Normally, it's like um, from nine to fourteen days seems to be the average. Oh, okay. For now, for uh, nowadays. So, uh, that, but, so that's about ten miles a day, then, right? Ten. So kind of an average. Ten miles? No, it would be closer to like. If they do ten, if they if ten the, miles, nine to fourteen. Yeah, nine. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, you mean 100. like a hundred miles? Sorry. Yeah, ten to fourteen About days. Approximately. Yeah. Give or take, you know, depends on the day and which route where. The, so some days, depending on the ground that they're on, they could do maybe two hundred. But then, oh, that's true. if they're in the mountains, maybe they only could do twenty five, fifty. Going down. So here, it, you're like, yeah, you're like load up the dogs. Yeah, that's all slide slide down. Yeah. <laughs> so it, it, there's lots of different factors that could depend on that, but um, pro, and like I said, they're much faster nowadays, probably due to better training. And better sled technology. Okay. Uh, and sometimes it takes the winter, uh, yeah, a couple days longer. And it really, like I said, it just depends on the weather and the weather conditions. Yeah. And it and it depends if where there's good snow. The snow plays a big part in it too. Okay. There's been years. I swear I read something where there's years where there hasn't been snow in certain areas. Oh, so that wow. then they had to really change the course and makes it makes it everything different. Oh, or I swear they've added snow too a couple times. Like I don't Interesting. know. I don't know. I can't remember. Where they just put wheels on this. <laughs> <laughs> well, they do that in training. Pit stop. In, <laughs> in the summertime, they do that for training. Oh, do they? Nice. Yeah. It reminds me. It, I don't know why, but it, when I was reading about it, it reminded me. Remember the movie Cool Runnings? Yeah. With the Jamaican cool bobsled team, yeah. and when they're in Jamaica and they're training and they're on the wheeled bobsled, <laughs> that's what it reminded me of. And I was doing that. Uh, and we'll get into more on how the race works and everything. I'll get more into that later. But first, let's look at the very interesting history of how the race came to be. Okay. And in order to do this, Dave, we actually need to do something. We need to dust off uh, an old machine of ours. Oh. Machine I feel like we haven't used in quite a while. We need to, <sighs> yes, dust off and hop in because we're hitting the time machine. Sometime. Somewhere. All right, so to get a better idea about the Iditarod Trail and how sled dogs were used, we are going back to the late 1800s, early 1900s. Okay. Can be flirt around there. And the Iditarod Trail is a historic trail and plays a big part in the history of Alaska. Portions of the Iditarod Trail were used by Alaska natives hundreds of years before European settlers arrived. They basically invented the use of sled dogs. Uh, natives used sled dogs to travel, trade, hunt, uh, just a number of different things. And this worked really well for them for a long time. And parts of the trail then continued to be used when Russian fur traders came to Alaska in the mid-1800s and established some trading posts along the trail. Then the U.S. purchased Alaska in 1867. And Dave, you here's a little history okay. uh, question for you. How much did we buy Alaska for from Russia in 1867? I think it was $16 million? Not even. Oh. oh it was a 7.2 two million. Oh, okay. I mean, it seems like chump change now, doesn't yeah. it? I, I didn't look it up the difference to what it would be nowadays, but let's just say a lot. Yeah, a lot. A lot. <laughs> it would be a lot. <laughs> um, but the trail continued to be used through this period. Um, 
The part of the trail being used at this time was on the west coast to maybe a couple hundred miles into the interior. Okay. So it's only a small part of the trail that we know today that was being used at this time. Okay. But if, God, if you think back back then, like, did nobody knew what the interior of Alaska was like? Yeah. Very, like, maybe a very, very few, but there was, like, nobody who went, like, the interior? I'm going to go, it's like hollow earth in there. We don't yeah. know. So, yeah, it's really interesting to think about it in those terms. <laughs> like, it was uncharted. Yeah. They're like, well, really, we're only taking, we may be taking this whole big state of Alaska, but at that time, they're like, oh, you probably wouldn't even be able to get there. You'll just have this coastline. Yeah. We, who, That's really what you're buying. But, yeah. Who, yeah. It's, it's interesting. They're like, we'll throw this backcountry in for free. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, what really helped the trail grow was in 1896 to about 1908. There were three areas where gold was found. So there was a pretty good-sized gold rush here. I bet the Russians were like, dang Damn. it. Damn it. Or whatever they you say, gold. Russia. Yeah. <laughs> Nay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But uh, one gold strike was in the southern part of what was what was called uh, Hope and Sunrise, Alaska, about 80 miles from Anchorage. The second was in Nome, where the race finishes on the west coast and the third gold strike was between um, the more it was in the more in the interior around the towns of Iditarod and Flat. Oh, so Iditarod was a town. Interesting. Okay. So the trail got bigger. Uh, a trail was made to link up all these three areas of the gold rush, so they could have a trail that runs through all of this gold rushing okay. areas. That makes sense. Yeah. And yeah, this is this is a big part of the race trail still today. Oh, and so like thousands of people came all, all over the country trying to get rich from mining gold. The primary transportation and communication link were steamships in the summertime, but during the long winter months, which is about from October to June, when <laughs> oh, <wow. laughs> that's a long winter. Yeah. Uh, parts like Nome were icebound, so you couldn't wow. get ships to come through. So sled dogs were used to transport all kinds of things. The, they delivered mail, they delivered firewood, mining equipment, food, furs, gold, and whatever else needed to be transported nice. between trading uh, posts and settlements across the trail. There was a good amount of gold found in these areas, uh... One, one story that I read had a musher that hauled 1,000 pounds of gold. Oh, my goodness. That's a, that's a heavy sled. Yeah. Uh, he, which would today be valued at $20 million. Oh, wow. And it, guess how long it took him? It took him 37 days to deliver from Iditarod to Seward, which is, wow. not, which is not super long. Oh, not, no. It's not like the Iditarod itself. Oh, it's not? Okay. No, but it took him 37 days to do this because he had such a heavy load. Jeez. But imagine like being out there and like a big blizzard comes by and you're just like, I'm just going to huddle up with the money. I'm going to die rich. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But the, uh, the gold rush continued for a few more years. Even a railway was built. But uh, mining really slowed down around 1917 when a lot of workers left to fight in World War One. Okay. And there are a few other, there's a bunch of other reasons why, but mining really slowed down around this time. There's a few other factors, but it, was, it slowed down at this time. And the railroad was finished in 1923, and it really kind of killed the use of the sled dog. Okay. It just became less and less uh, yeah. in that region. But the railroad did not go through the town of Iditarod. Oh, okay. Okay, so we're going to bring up Iditarod, the, the town. The town of Iditarod, later, not too much later, after this became a ghost town. Oh. And it still is today. Oh, wow. Pretty much it still is. Uh, and then in 1924, the first airplane was used to drop off mail, putting sled dogs really on the shelf. Oh, okay. So, but like Iditarod is still a ghost town today, and the railway uh, used what is called the Northern Route, and Iditarod was part of the Southern Route, which after this, after the railroad, was not really used anymore. Oh, okay. I think I I, like, I thought of it as you know kind of famous to the uh, Route 66 here oh, in okay. America, yeah. Like in here in the U.S., uh, it was huge for a while, right? And then freeways got put in. 
and the freeways made it so you could just bypass everything on Route 66, yeah. and it really just killed everything that was there. Yeah. So I, I thought of it in those terms. That makes, makes sense. Yeah. All right, but in 1925, there is the most famous sled dog story that happens. This is, of course, the story that we have talked about a couple times by now. Um, and this is kind of this story solidified the trail's place in history for sled dogs. In January 1925, in the town of Nome, many people became ill with diphtheria. Diphtheria is a serious infection of the nose and throat, and it makes difficult uh, makes breathing really difficult, mm. and it was especially prevalent in children. Ooh, uh, but it's a uh, it's it's deadly, but it's also easily preventable. With a vaccine. Okay. Uh, this is the famous Balto story that I'm bringing up. And we covered it in more detail in our Celebrity Animals episode um, when we talked about Balto. Uh-huh. And it's the 1925 serum run to Nome. That's what the story's called. Uh, airplanes or ships couldn't get to Nome to deliver the serum. So a relay team was set up of dog sled teams that were used and the mushers traveled 674 miles in order to deliver these vaccines. Nice. Kind of a John Henry like story, you know, where the, the machines, you know, were trying to take over and be able to do everything, but Hey, sometimes oh. they fail. Yeah. Yep. Sometimes gotta go back to the... you got to have man and dog yeah. it works better. Yeah. You're that's a good point. Good old man power. Uh, and the deal with Balto was that he was the lead dog on the final team that finally arrived to Nome with the vaccines. He was the one of the lead dog. Well, I'm going to get into it more. Okay. okay. But uh, it's it's actually kind of funny because Balto, I think he, he may get way, too, way more credit than he actually deserves. <laughs> so over 100 sled dogs were used on 20 different teams to deliver the vaccines. And it, like I said, it was kind of in a relay race fashion. Like mm-hmm. you cover this much ground and then you pass the serum off and the next team takes it and they keep going. And each team would cover a certain part of the trip and they would pass the vaccines to the next team. So Balto was apparently the lead sled dog that arrived in Nome and to, to deliver the actual vaccines. But the real star of the whole thing, however, may not have been Balto. Ah, but another lead dog from another team named Togo. Okay. Have you remember this? Does that ring a yeah. bell? And Togo ran nearly five times as far as Balto. Yeah, didn't he have to take a take a uh, another uh, route? Another not another route. Another, another leg. Another team's leg. I something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. He took like three teams' legs. It, okay. se- it seems like something like that. But. Um, and laying through like really the worst conditions of that anybody oh. had through the whole time, he did like two hundred and something miles of it himself or that team with Togo as the lead okay. dog. Um, yeah, and he had really bad weather conditions, and some say Togo is more of a hero dog than Balto. And I also found something interesting. So Balto may not have actually been the lead dog to even finish. Oh, he why might not they, have. Why did they use Balto then? I'll tell you. So some argue that the lead dog was actually named the lead dog of this team. I can't remember the musher's name. I I didn't write it down. Oh. But uh, the lead dog of this team, some people say that it's the dog's name was actually Fox. Oh. But so the people that were in Nome and that report, this was a huge story all oh, over okay. America. Like this, everybody was into this story. Like this was, oh, right, huh? this was the story to read about. This was frontline headlines of the newspapers back then. But the newspaper people that were there at Nome waiting on him thought that the readers might actually think they, he was like, the newspaper guy asked him, well, what's the name of your dog, your lead dog? And the guy said, Fox. And the guy was like, Hmm. The readers might think a fox is a fox. What's the what's this dog's name? That's Balto. Mm, Balto. <laughs> and then he wrote down Balto. Must have been a CNN reporter. <laughs> <laughs> Could have been it. I'll just I'll just put a different one on there. So yeah, he looked at another dog and yeah, and learned that his name was Balto. He's like Balto. That sounds good. We're gonna run with that one, boys. <laughs> and so Balto. Yeah. So they just ran with Balto, and, and we'll find out a little bit more. But um, we don't know the whole story. No, I don't think anybody really knows. 
for sure anymore. Uh-huh. But the this vaccine run was a big national, like I said, national story, huge in the time. Newspapers ate it up. And the successful uh, run was celebrated. Uh, the mushers and dogs even had a parade to commemorate them. Right the parade was like in New York. Wow. Yeah, so. And then did a they scat. Have to, did they have to uh, mush the dogs no, all the way no. there? They, I don't think they had to mush the dogs to New York. <laughs> but uh, a statue of Balto was built later in 1925, dedicated to him and everyone involved in the mission. And it still stands in Central Park in New York wow. City. Poor Fox. He's probably like, what the heck, man? <laughs> right? And uh, something I didn't know was that Togo actually got a statue of his own as well. It's on the Lower East Side of Seward Park in New York City. Oh, right on. Um, and and now you can find the real Balto, who was stuffed. And then he is actually now in display in the Cleveland Museum of Natural History. Wow. It's a weird spot, Cleveland. Yeah. To have Balto. And, you know, it's just... That's an odd spot, but whatever. <laughs> and we've talked about the story before in more detail. Uh, go back to listen to episode 76, Celebrity Animals, uh, if you want to learn more. But a really cool story, and part of the trail that they used in the serum run is uh-huh. used in the Iditarod. Okay. And it's a huge Alaskan story, the, the serum run. It's a big deal. Okay, so on just like two nights ago, Dave... I watched the movie Togo. Oh, did you? Okay. Have you ever seen it? Well, yeah, with William... Uh... William Dafoe? Yeah. Oh, yeah. so you have seen it. Uh-huh. Okay, do you remember that bit in the movie where the guy's like, hmm, Fox? Hmm, no, what's this dog's name? Oh, oh no, I don't remember they, that. That was, part was in the movie. Oh, okay. And I was like, yes. And I like, after all my research, I watched it, which was good to do after my research, because uh-huh. I was like, that's accurate, that's accurate, that's accurate. Oh, right on. So, and it was well-received and well, I, I was accurate. Yeah. It's uh, like, I read the Wikipedia of it and everything, and they said that this was pretty historically accurate. But um, the Willem Dafoe plays Leonard uh, Seppla, who was the musher of Togo. And if you saw the movie and like Togo as a puppy was just a menace. Do you remember that in the movie? Gosh, I don't remember. He was an escape artist, always getting uh, away. Like um, his character tried to get rid of him a couple of times. And then Togo <laughs> would just keep coming back and return. And uh, Seppla was like, Oh, you'll never be a sled dog. And then, <laughs> then he makes it the lead dog and the best dog of best dog ever for him. Yeah. So it's a really good movie. I really liked it. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I highly recommend it to everyone. You can go and check it out. It's on Disney Plus, and it has a 92% rating on Rotten Tomatoes. That's pretty good. Yeah. But, yeah, excellent movie. I uh, encourage everybody to go watch it so you can kind of get the feel of this story for yourself. Yeah. But, uh, so after the vaccine run, sled dogs really became obsolete for several decades. Wow. Uh, and still, I mean, they were still used in like some rural areas for a few things, but not uh-huh. much, not like what they used to be. And before this, uh, b- uh, before this in its heyday, there was an early version of the Iditarod race in 1908, a 408 mile race from Nome to Candle and back called the All Alaskan Sweepstakes. Uh, and actually in the movie Togo, it had this um, musher Seppala. Racing in that race. Oh, okay. So I was, I, I saw that. I remember on the movie, I saw the banner said, All Alaskan Sweepstakes. I was like, I know what that is. Nice. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> but it was, it held, it was held for 10 years in a row from 1908 to 1917. And then it was done for after that. And then uh, in 1910, the, in, the event introduced the first Siberian Huskies to Alaska. Really? Oh, yeah. wow. That's the that was when the first time that they were racing, oh. and they quickly became the uh, favored racing dogs, replacing the Alaskan Malamutes. Okay. So back then, you, Malamutes are bigger. Oh yeah. So, uh, the, yeah, they're much bigger and larger than Huskies, but the uh, Siberian Huskies are better for speed and endurance. Okay. But after this race, uh, after this race. Then, you know, you had World War One, the railroad, and then airplanes, sled dogs were not used for much. And the Iditarod Trail was kind of all but forgotten. Mm. Uh, then add the invention of the snowmobile. Okay. Which really had taken the place of sled dogs, and which is still kind of does for the most yeah. part today. So in an effort to recognize the long history and tradition of the sledding, of uh, dog sledding in Alaska... A woman named Dorothy G. Page, uh, chairman of the Wasilla Nick Sentinel 
Centennial, there we go, okay. <laughs> helped set up a short race on the Iditarod Trail in 1967 with famous musher Joe Reddington Sr., hmm. who later became known as the father of the Iditarod. Okay. He's like a super famous musher. Uh, this race was very successful. There were 58 mushing teams and a 25000 purse prize. Do you know what that means, purse prize? Yeah. Where they split it, and, yeah. but the winner gets the most and it goes from there. Yeah. That's how the race is still done. Okay. But the, the next year, in 68, the race was canceled due to lack of snow. Oh, wow. Then in 69, the race was very small with just 12 mushers and a 1000 purse prize. Like, that's not even worth it. No. Uh, so this first rendition of the race fell through. This was like the first try. Okay. And, it, you know, they did it twice and it fell through. Then Reddington, along with two others, decided to try again, but go even bigger with planning a 1,000-mile race. Wow. They started planning it in 1972 and with a major fundraising campaign pushed the purse up to $51,000. Okay. In uh 73 the first the first true Iditarod race was held. It had 34 mushing teams and 22 completed the race. Oh wow. That's it. I mean there's normally like, several uh, racers that drop out each year uh -huh. due to due, due to any amount of circumstances. Yeah. But yeah, 22 completed the race this year. And the event was a uh, big success. Uh, more mushers joined the following year. And in 75, corporate sponsorship put the race on secure financial footing. And this race caused a resurgence of recreational mushing in the 70s and has continued to grow and is now the largest sporting event in Alaska. Oh, pretty cool, huh? Yeah. Uh, there's a quite a deep history to the Iditarod that you never would have thought about. Yeah. Like, who would have thought the gold rush had a role to play in it? And, yeah. Uh, amongst other things. Uh, but yeah, I really enjoyed learning about the history part of it. Did you ever watch the Iditarod, like a sports cast on it or something? I've watched lots of videos on the Iditarod. Oh, so uh, I, it, it was really, yeah, it was really cool. Did they have commentators? Like, uh, right. looks like Bob's lost his uh, left sled. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, they didn't. They didn't have it quite like that. But there, there was like a um... dog two is lagging a little bit behind there. That might cost him a little bit of time. Mm -hmm. See, well, it's a good <laughs> thing he's got about uh, two weeks. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, I didn't. Not not quite like that. But there, there was like a podcast. There's a I did oh, a yeah? podcast. I listened to a little right bit. On. Back in March, and yeah, so there's lot. There was a lot more things about the Iditarod than I anticipated. That's cool. All right, so now let's talk more about the race itself and how it works, and then we will talk about kind of a little bit more about the dogs, and then some kind of like famous people, some records, and then I've got a cool, uh, couple like ac small accidents that we'll talk about. Oh, okay. Anything deathy? Just kidding. <laughs> oh, really? Uh, oh. Foreshadowing, yeah, a little deathy. Okay. Um, so how the race works since 1983. The race ceremonially starts from downtown Anchorage on the first Saturday of March. Okay. And it starts at 10 a.m. Don't be late. Uh, teams leave in two-minute intervals and ride a short distance outside of town. This isn't the true start of the race, though. This is kind of more for publicity. Okay. So they're just like, let them, let them go through the town, let everybody see them, them and the dogs. Yeah. Type of a deal. Um, but... The uh, but large crowds gather to see the mushers begin their journey. It's kind of a fun deal for everyone to yeah you know, more publicity and get people to enjoy it. Yeah. But after the ceremonial start, the teams rest as they are moved up to Wasia, about forty miles um, from Anchorage, and that's uh, here they will start the official race the next day. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Any sabotage going on at that point? <laughs> I'm not aware of any. I'm not aware of any. Hey, Jorgensen. Hey, Jorgensen. Feed this to your dogs. It's a cake for a celebration. But, yeah, today the route of the race follows two different trails. So in odd years, they use the southern route. And in even years, they use the northern route. So they switch oh, off. Oh, okay. So let me explain a little bit more. So basically the first third of the race is the same as uh -huh. always. 
And then the second of the second third is that's when it will switch from either the northern or the southern route. Okay. And then the third part of the race is the same. Make sense? So the middle okay. part, the middle section is the different. They'll switch off each year. Okay. And they start at the same place and end in the same place, but the middle part switches each year. Okay. okay. Got it. Are there like mid, are there like towns in midpoints? Sometimes. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, there are. Uh, while racing, the mushers have 26 checkpoints that they must go through mm. during the race. Uh, these are areas where they can stop to rest both themselves and their dogs. They eat. Um, both of them and their dogs will eat. Uh, they'll check the health of their dogs. They'll have communication with other humans <laughs> for the for <laughs> the first time in a while. And they can do whatever else they need to do there. Okay. And so if a dog, say, happens to get injured during the race... Uh, a musher can drop it off at a checkpoint oh, okay. so it can be uh, better taken care of and it'll, it'll be returned to them later, obviously. But the, the main priority uh, is the health of the dogs. They're really big on the health of the dogs because this takes a lot out of them. How bad, yeah. And uh, everyone involved does a good job of that from what I read. Um, at a checkpoint, a team can spend as little as 10 minutes there to spend. They could spend 10 minutes there, or they could spend the night. They could spend 10 hours if they wanted to. But um, it's up to the musher and the team. Uh, there is a lot of strategy involved in where to win and where to rest, kind of. And sometimes mushers will just, instead of you know crashing like in a cabin or something, uh -huh. they'll just sleep on the trail. They'll camp out, and uh, you know they could just take several hours rest, do whatever they want. They'll yeah. make a fire. <laughs> There's You can do whatever you want. Yeah. Oh, it's like... This is like the original cannonball run. <laughs> <laughs> and there are only a few mandatory rules when it comes to resting, okay? Oh, okay. So every team must take one 24-hour rest. Oh, wow. At some point during the race. So you okay. must take a full day's rest, and that's for you and your dogs. But yeah, full day rest. And they can do it. I, I believe that they can do it whenever they want, but you have a... 24-hour break is mandatory. Oh, okay. And a lot as as they also have two other things. Uh, along with that, they have two eight-hour rests that are also mandatory. Oh, okay. So you have to stop somewhere and, and uh, chill for eight hours. Okay. I mean, you're not chilling. You're probably taking care of your dogs most of the time. You might get a few hours of sleep. Like these mushers, it's pretty rough. Like, oh they, no, you're in Alaska. You'll be chilling. <laughs> <laughs> but uh. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of work for these mushers, and they're not sleeping much. I guarantee you that. Yeah. And uh, the race, like I said, lasts, lasts like 9 to 12 days, even longer sometimes uh, normally. So it's a good idea for the rest periods. Yeah. And remember, throughout the race, they go through many types of environments, through mountains, valleys, forests, across rivers, across ocean ice. Uh, through villages and just so many different types of environments that you just never know what's going to happen. Yeah. And anything can happen out there when it comes to weather. It could be 60 degrees, you know, uh, or it could be negative 60. Uh, <laughs> it literally could yikes. switch like that in like a yeah. day or two. So that's probably why they force the uh, mandatory 24 hour mandatory aids because if you push too much and you're pushing yourself and something like that unexpectedly happens, oh, you yeah. could, oh you'll you know, die. You, you, yeah. You wouldn't have a. You'll be out of energy when yeah. you have what you need. And then oh, your dogs will be too. Yeah. And then uh, then you got to add in wind, wind chills to some of those areas. Ooh, Holy yeah. cow. Gee. But then again, it could be a really nice March. And it could be like hey, 60 yeah. degrees. Oh, look at the flowers. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I get... I guess all teams must rest for at least eight hours at one certain point. Okay. Called White Mountain. Oh. Which is about 77 miles to Nome, where the that's the finish of the race. And they call this the last dash after that. Ah. Sometimes winners win by over an hour, um, Some while some years' winners have been decided by under three minutes. Oh, crazy. Uh, or, or it could be more. It could be it could be almost half a day. Oh wow! And if you win the race, what do you get? Well, what do you think? Do they get millions of dollars in a trip to Disneyland? No. <laughs> yeah. Trip to Nome, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> trip to Nome. Right. Hey, I'm already in Nome. <laughs> Take two weeks to get here. Uh, but no, not quite. I I found the prize money earnings from the 2020 race. Uh huh. So the purse 
of that was a right around five hundred thousand dollars. Oh, that's pretty good. So that's the purse. So that's the overall of it. Uh-huh. So in 2020, there were 34 mushing teams, which was not many. Yeah. Uh, the first place winner received $51,607. Oh, that's it? Fifty-one, Yeah, 50000 Oh, my goodness. First place only gets 10% of the purse? Yeah. And then second earned 43000 Jeez. And third place earned 40000 What, are they trying to give everyone a piece of the purse? Everybody does get a piece of the purse. Serious? But let me tell you, and it gets it gets smaller from each place. So at 20th place, that person earned a little over 10000 And everyone who finished after 20th uh, got $1,000 in, or sorry, $1,049. Oh, gee. So that's all they got. Wow. So not a whole lot of money involved in being a musher oh, no. in the race. If this is the prime race and that's yeah. you might get fifty grand out of it. Not a not a big deal. That's, go over. that's sad when you get more out of esports, you know? <laughs> <laughs> and it used to be a little bit more, but uh it's kind of dwindled in the last few years from yeah, what I from what bad. I read. Um so yeah, like I said, not a whole lot of money. But the mushers do make money from sponsors. Okay. So there is more to it than just the race, obviously. Oh, that's good. The race gives them prestige and make gives them sponsors okay. to make money. And then a lot of them do like um signings and they'll do book deals. Oh, okay. So they they can make money off that. So but it, it's still not it's not like your main sports. It's not that lucrative. Uh, not very lucrative sport. That's too bad. Especially considering the time and energy and money yeah. that it takes to train and keep the dogs. Yeah. I did do a little research on what mushers keep in their sleds, which is pretty interesting. Uh, This is what they keep in their sleds while racing. Their sleds are packed with essential gear, and some of it is actually mandatory. Like, you must take a few things. Oh, okay. So, uh, packing light is a big, you know, you want to pack light. It makes Uh sense. Mushers also, so what they do is they'll send out items to be picked up at certain checkpoints. Oh, Kind of like a DoorDash. <laughs> <laughs> I guess. I mean, they'll, they'll like leave things at certain checkpoints. Okay. Like they'll leave food and what uh, supplies and what else they need. And so they'll pick it up at that checkpoint. Like it's okay. flown out with them or taken out before the race. And so they know what they're going to be picking up okay. and they get to certain checkpoints. So it's not like everything is in there sled all at once and okay. they got to run on that. That's not the case. They'll, they'll pick things up at checkpoints. Okay. But mandatory items include a sleeping bag, an axe, snowshoes and bindings, eight booties per dog. Oh. You know, booties help the dog's feet. Okay. You've seen, have you seen them on? I don't know. I, I hadn't yeah, it's just, that. It's just kind of like, it looks like a sock. Okay. But they call them a booty. It helps the dog's feet. Okay. Uh, they also must bring a cooker and a pot, a uh, cable drop line, harnesses for the dog, obviously a uh, gps tracker and this is like the must thing you thing you must bring the most is a veterinarian guidebook oh okay interesting yeah uh, other things mushers will carry is uh, extra dog food extra clothing blankets headlamps batteries freeze-dried food and sometimes a freeze-dried food <laughs> not like it won't be <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and sometimes, you know, like a, a, they'll be able to, nowadays they can have a phone sometimes. Oh, okay. Uh, or they'll bring a satellite phone so they can call family on when they're resting or whatnot. Or we're missing, you know. Or we're missing. <laughs> what is it, honey? <laughs> I caught a leak and it froze already now. We're okay. Oh, okay. He's like trying to solve his wife's problems while he's mushing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but yeah, that's kind of the, they, they could carry a bunch of other things, but that's kind of the basics that I'm, I'm sure they got more personalized um, bags yeah. and everything. And like I said, they could they could pick up additional food and items at certain checkpoints, even a whole new sled so, if they need to. Oh, okay. If the sled gets damaged, they do have backups oh, at right checkpoints. Okay, so let's talk more about the uh, the good boys oh. and girls <laughs> that pull the sleds. Okay. So like we said, originally sled dogs were Alaskan Malamutes. Mm-hmm. But over the years, the dogs have been crossbred. Well, we said that Siberian Huskies came in, right? Yeah. And then there was all this crossbreeding. Okay. Between Malamutes and Huskies and uh, several other uh, dog breed types. 
And um, all the crossbreeding made for a newer breed, which is now called the Alaskan Husky. Oh, okay. Which is the most commonly used breed for mushing now. Okay. Uh, I don't really know the differences between a Siberian Husky and an Alaskan Husky, but there are some differences. Is it bigger or... Is the Alaskan and bigger? I don't know. I can't remember. Oh. But they're about they're they're like they're, they're same same, but they're different. Okay. Right? There's a few different things about them, and it was just from all the crossbreeding that they did. Okay. But uh, each mushing team is made up to around twelve to sixteen dogs, and the smartest and fastest dogs are chosen to be the lead dogs running at the front, and they are they're like the quarterbacks of the team. They okay. uh, they are the leaders. And then the middle dogs are called swing dogs that are best at moving the team around curves. And then in the, yeah, that's kind of what they're, they're good for. Oh, okay. Uh, then in the back, you have like the largest and strongest dogs. These are, oh. these are your linemen. Okay. Uh, they're called wheel dogs. Oh. So the bigger and stronger dogs are in the back that help out. And a team must finish the race with at least five, I think it's uh, five or six dogs that could still be running. So you could start okay. with, you could start, I guess, technically you could start with 16 and you could lose 10 of them. Oh, wow. Or you, you could, well, hopefully you don't lose them, but yeah. <laughs> it's not like they run off. But uh, um, they could get injured or there's a number of reasons they, a dog could be taken out of race. It could be for um, attitude issues. There's That's uh, happened. Okay. Like if the dogs are causing problems, they'll just leave it at the checkpoint. Yeah. But um, wish I could do that to my kids sometimes. <laughs> uh, but yeah, if, so you could finish the you have to finish the race with at least I think it's five or six dogs. Okay. If you don't, then you're like DQ'd or something. I don't oh. know. So is there an optimum number of dogs to have on your sled? Like too much? Does What's, too much slow you down? Or? I I don't know. I don't. That's a good. That's a good question. Oh. I mean, you would think that the more dogs, the better. But actually, I think about it. Like, what it depends. It depends. I, I really I really don't know that. Oh, okay. Uh, if there's any mushers listening to this, uh, let us know. <laughs> I don't know. But uh, training for the race starts in late summer and gets more intense as the race gets closer, obviously. Uh, once they are uh, on the trail, mushers put the dogs on a very strict diet and keep a veterinary's diary to monitor their health. Okay. So they're really... They really got to keep track of the dog's mm. health because their dogs are their engines, you know? Yeah. It's just, yeah, you know, like on a train or something, you got to check the engine every hour, a couple hours, you yeah. know? This is the same thing. Uh, and there are actually proper vets at checkpoints as well oh, okay. to go over the dogs if need be. And as you can imagine, caring for all these dogs is not only challenging, but it's expensive. I'll bet. Yeah. Uh, annual cost for a team of dogs in, ranges for anywhere from twenty to eighty thousand dollars a year. Wow, that's a lot of money for a lot of dogs. Gee, yeah, uh, I think it's fair to say that these mushing dogs are uh, needy, but <laughs> uh, then that's what they got to do. They actually, I read, I remember reading they they um, on a regular like a day of racing, they'll lose over nine thousand calories. Wow. And they have different lungs than us. They're able to breathe and, and do the endurance thing uh-huh. at a higher speed than we are. Even though we're humans are really good at endurance running, too. Not me. No, not me either. I'm but, horrible. But humans are good at it. But, uh, yeah, there's something up with the lungs of the dogs which enable them to be really good at doing this, and especially in the cold weather. Okay. But uh, I, I do think it's fair to say that these... Uh, Machine dogs are good boys. Yeah. <laughs> All right, so now let's go over a few famous people, and it's kind of a few records. Okay. We'll go over some records. So the first winner, I think I mentioned earlier, was Dick Walmarth, Wilmarth. In 1973, he won in 20 days. Okay. And like I think I said this earlier too, but the fastest winning time was by uh, Mitch Seavey in 2017 in eight days, three hours, 40 minutes and 13 seconds. Mm. I get it down to the second. Wow. The first musher to win the race five times was Rick Swenson in 1991. He won the race in three different decades. Wow. 70s, 80s, and 90s. The second five-time winner was 
or is a guy named Dallas Seavey, son of Mitch Seavey that I mentioned. Yeah, Uh, he was also the winner of the 2021 race. So he's he won it this year. Uh, He is only 34 years old too, and he is um, he's the second five time winner. Oh wow! Uh, Along with his father Mitch, who has won three times and has the record. The uh, grandfather, Dan Seavey, competed in the first two races. Wow. So the Seaveys are kind of like Iditarod royalty, it sounds uh, okay. like. Okay. Yeah. then there's all kinds like of... Like an Earnhardt family for, yeah, the, yeah, for sure. dog racing. <laughs> but yeah, there, there's several different people and families that are like that. They're kind of like royalty. Okay. And there are five others who have uh, won the race four times. Oh, so two five-time winners and five four-time winners. Okay. The first woman to win the race was named Libby Riddles. Ooh, nice name. Yeah, that is a good name. Yeah. Libby Riddles. In uh, 1985. And nice. the first non-Alaskan native to win was Doug Swingley of Montana in 1995. Oh, wow. The first... The first uh, Proper foreign winner was Robert Sorley of Norway huh. in 2003. But yeah, those are just kind of a few records that I found. Right Pretty on. Pretty cool. All right, so we've we've honestly covered about everything I wanted to cover uh, for the race. But I, I do have a... We're going to kind of go over one main one, and then I'll just mention a few other uh, kind of accidents okay. that have happened while on the trail. As you can imagine, there would be a you would think there'd be a lot. I think there would be more. They actually do all right. But, um, yeah, we can all tell that the Iditarod race is extremely dangerous. Like, super dangerous. So many things can go wrong. Freezing temperatures, volatile weather, uh, so many things. Uh, but for this this next story, the danger comes from local wildlife. Oh. Pretty good. All right. In 1985, famous musher... Susan Butcher was on the trail with her dog team only about 120 miles from the start of the race. And she was already in, f- in first place. Oh. She, she was one of the favorites to win this thing, too. Oh. Uh, well, her and her dogs came face to face with a starving, pregnant bear. Moose. <laughs> oh, serious? Yeah, a moose. Wow. And there's like this certain um, area where they're at. They, uh, it's like the nickname of it. It's like Moose Valley because oh, they okay. do run into moose a lot there. But yes, uh, they in the nighttime, kind of like in the middle of the night, they ran into a starving pregnant moose Ooh. that was right in, that was blocking the trail right in the middle of the. So trail. they literally ran into it. <laughs> Not quite. Um, traveling at night, she had no chance to steer her team away, so. What happened was the moose, although they stopped, some the dogs obviously stopped, but the moose kicked her lead dog against a tree. Ooh. Susan ran to the front wielding an axe trying to scare the moose off. Wow. Now, that didn't really do much. Ooh. For 20 minutes, the moose kept coming at the team of 17 dogs. Gee. The attack only ended when the next racer reached the team and he happened to be carrying a gun. Oh. I don't know if it was a rifle or a pistol. I'm not sure. But he shot and killed the moose. Okay. But the, the damage had kind of been done. Two of Susan's dogs were killed. And oh, wow. 13 of them were badly injured. Jeez. So almost all of them got oh, injured. Oh, my goodness. Um, She obviously had to drop out of the race at this oh, point. Oh, that's right? too bad. And as she was, she and her dogs were flown to a veterinary clinic. Um, with the surviving dogs. Um, so pretty wild. Yeah. I mean, God, there was another uh, moose story that happened in 1990 as well, but I didn't oh. quite follow it up. Um, but not, yeah, not the only moose accident. You, God, you'd think there'd be a lot more. Yeah. But, um, yeah. <laughs> That's crazy one enough. Yeah. But uh, a little bit more about Susan. She's got, she's a really famous racer. Okay. Susan later became a dominating force in the race and won it the very next year. Oh, right. In on. 1986. She's the second woman to ever win because that the year the year before, 1985 is the year that Libby won. Okay. So it was kind of a her and Libby were the, like the main oh, two right pushers on. going on, but she had to drop out like just a day or two into oh. it. 
But then she even won the next year, and uh, oh, and she won like the uh, next four races in a row. Wow. She does. She like won a four out of the next five years in a row. Wow. Just dominated. Uh, and there is actually a lot of info on her. She was a very hardworking, inspirational character. Right on. And since 2008, there was a bill saying every first Saturday in March would be known as Susan Butcher Day in Alaska. Oh, right on. That's obviously the same day that the race starts. So it's huh. Susan uh, Butcher Day. So right kind of cool. Yeah. Uh, not the not the moose attack, but you know Susan is cool. Yeah. And that you know there are so many other wild and crazy stories and many and also many inspirational stories that have happened during the Iditarod. You know, for instance, like in 1990, instead of snow falling, it happened to be ash from a volcano eruption. Wow! That was that coated the trail. Like, <laughs> pretty pretty wild. Crazy. Or in oh this one was yeah this one sucked this one in a night in or sorry uh, 2016 uh-huh. when a snowmobiler harassed mushers oh geez. harassing mushers on the trail and and eventually ran into a team and killed a dog oh my goodness and injured another jeez yeah what are you I, I, that for um he eventually did get a um yeah he was later found and charged and so yeah they, they said he was drunk he said he was drunk um but i don't know exactly. yeah uh, literally anything can happen on this wild race. Uh, the mushers and dogs are truly endurance champs, and they, you know they deserve our respect. Yeah, it's really it's a really cool sport. I think now. Yeah. Uh, maybe this episode will introduce some new people to the sport. Uh, you know, it's, it's honest. It's really cool. It's a cool sport, and it's really cool. The dogs are awesome. Yeah. It's really hard. It's got to well, be bet. a really hard sport. But it's really cool. And I plan on keeping an eye on the 20 to 22 race. <laughs> I hope they increase the purse on that. Yeah, I do too. I hope mm-hmm. they do. Uh, all right. So last thing, there is another movie that I watched just like two nights ago. And um, it was a movie that I th- thought about. I was like, I remember watching it as a kid, but I couldn't remember a lot of it. But what I remembered was that the the kid who was being the musher, he ate fruitcake. Eight fruitcake, okay. I, and I was like, there is a movie about dog sledding. So I, I looked it up, and the movie that I was thinking about is called Iron Will. Oh, yeah. Do you remember that I movie? I remember that one. That was, I was, yeah, I was just looking that up to see if that was the Iditarod there. It, it was well, a race. Could, uh, but. but yeah, it was a Disney movie from 1994. It's also on Disney Plus, so I was able to watch it again. Oh, okay. And it just brought, like, I just remembered so much about it. Like, as a kid, it was pretty yeah. cool. Um, Kevin Spacey is in it. He's, like, the most famous guy in it. Oh, I don't remember a minute. Okay. He was, like, the I'll newspaper guy. And he, he was the newspaper guy who let the boy in there, see? And so oh, he could okay. be the musher and try to get some attention. Yeah. <laughs> he had that kind of voice going for him. Okay. But, uh, I, yeah, I watched it, and I, it was really cool. And so it didn't take place. It was, it was not the idea to rod. The movie takes place in 1917. Um, the kid is, like, from South Dakota or something, and or North Dakota, and he did mushing there. And then I remember he was going to go off to college. His, his small family ran a farm, and he was going to go off to college because uh-huh. he's, like, 17 years old. But then yeah, his dad had a mushing accident and fell into um, some ice. And got taken underwater, and then it affected him. And to gain, uh, to save the farm, he entered the race where he could win $10,000, which in today's money, I looked it up, it was like $300,000, or $300,000. Oh, okay. In today's money, but yeah. And so he uh, enters the race, he does all the training, and then he enters the race. And there's all these men, like grown-ass men there, and he's the only kid, and... Kevin Spacey saves him and make or helps him get into the race. It, it, it's it, it's a really good movie. Do you remember it yeah, at all? I remember. I okay. liked it when it came out. Yeah. Yeah, and the it's like a from the race goes from Winnipeg in Canada um down to Minneapolis or no St. Paul goes to okay. St. Paul. So it's like a five hundred mile race or something okay. like that. But man, I I that watching that movie brought 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 me back. I was like I remembered watching this movie twenty years ago. Right on. More than twenty years ago. But uh, it was a really good movie. Yeah. Did you like it? I did. I, I really yeah. enjoyed watching it, and it was a lot of fun. It's uh, it had this I uh, um six point six on IMDb. 
That's so, it, huh? That's it, yeah. Oh. But it was a really good movie. So we've got two movies for everyone to watch. Go watch Togo and watch Iron Will. Yeah. The kids will love both of those movies, too, and, and adults alike. So they're really good movies. Yeah. This this episode, too. A lot, of, a lot of times we have really bad movies to talk about. <laughs> so it's nice to have some like really good movies. I watched them back-to-back. Oh, did you? Yeah, right on. on during the weekend, and it was nice. really good stuff. Nice. All right, so Dave, that is going to wrap up the episode. Oh. I hope you and everyone learned and enjoyed uh, learning about the Iditarod and everything. I know I certainly did. But uh, as for next week, it will be episode 99. Ooh. I ha- have not decided what to cover yet. Uh, as of now, it could be anything. Okay. I don't know. It could be anything. But for our 100th episode, I do know what we're covering. Uh, we will be doing a story from our man. I'm Jim Corbett, mother. Jim Corbett. Nice. Uh, probably my favorite person in history. Yeah. Oh, he's so cool. I don't know why I like him so much, but he, he's just he's cool. He's so cool. Yeah. He's the coolest. And so the story that we will be covering is the man-eating leopard of Ruta Prayag. Ooh. I believe this is the leopard that killed 125 people. Oh, gee. That's super serial killer mode right there. Yeah. Yeah, a heavy hitter, so I'm very excited for it. And the story comes from one of Jim's book, and it's the whole a whole book. There's a whole book for this story. So it's like 230 pages. So I'm gonna it'll probably be end up being a two-part story because I have to condense 230 pages. So uh but I'm very excited for it. It's gonna be a lot of fun, so look forward to that. We do have a few shout-outs to give. Oh, right on. Shout out to Logan Hart. Logan Hart! He says that we help the workday go by faster. Sweet. So that's awesome. Yeah. And also shout out to Chloe Jeffrey from the UK. Chloe Jeffrey from the UK. Also says that we help them get through their workday, which nice. is good because I know I, I, I listen to podcasts when I work too. Yeah. So I, I know exactly what they how they feel with that. All right, so Dave, if anyone else wants to give a shout-out, what can they do for us? Go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, wherever you listen, subscribe, rate, review, give us five stars. Say something you like, you know, it helps really gain us more attention, get more listeners. If you really want to help us out, you can donate some moolah, help help mush our money is up to the uh, $1,049 mark, you know. That'll help. That's a good one. <laughs> You're always good at that. That's my favorite part of the show now. <laughs> But yes, um, if you want to donate, you can go to PayPal. You can find us by our email, forceofnaturepod at gmail.com, or on Venmo, my personal account, Matthew-Hamilton-51. And all that information will be on the description below as well. And uh, we do have t-shirts still ready and available. Our t-shirts are great. Yeah. I sold. Uh, I, I keep selling them to my friends. <laughs> nice. That works too. Hey. But uh, yeah, and they all, they all really like them, and everybody else who's bought them really likes them, so... Check them out. They are $24, correct? Plus shipping and handling, which normally comes to around uh, 30-ish, give or take. Okay. Um, I, well, we send a special little message, too, so uh, it'll be pretty cool. Uh, I do have a little so, little something that might happen. Okay, I want to oh, just okay. mention it. So, Dave, you know recently I've gotten really into making hot sauce. Yeah. Like, hot sauce yep. is my thing now. Uh, it's you've tried it, Tom. Uh huh. Yeah. Well, what was the one I liked? The pineapple. Pineapple jalapeno. Yeah. Pineapple jalapeno and avocado jalapeno are the my two main ones right nice. now. Nice. I don't know. I'm thinking about it. I'm like, I've already sold a bunch of them. Right on. But I haven't sold them. I just sold them to like people at work and stuff because it, it is really good, huh? Yeah, it's it really is. good stuff. Yeah. So it's kind of like a salsa hot sauce mix. It doesn't know. It's kind of in between it, but um. I'm thinking about maybe making like a force of nature hot sauce. Hey, there you go. I think that would be cool. And then <laughs> we could look um if anybody has names for our our hot sauces, let us know. We're gonna like I said, we're gonna do have the pineapple jalapeno and avocado jalapeno. And so I was thinking like what you can make it like this is the Jaguar's blood. There you go. That could be our name of something. <laughs> so if anybody has got a cool name that involves an animal that we could make a hot sauce, that would be pretty send nice. us send us those, because that would be pretty cool, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know. That could be a future business venture That's that cool. we could do. Yeah. All right. Uh, so, yeah, let us know on that. It'd be kind of fun. And uh, also to everyone, feel free to contact us if you ever want to. Tell us a cool animal-related story of you or someone you know. 
uh, or you can suggest an episode idea. You can ask us a question. Say whatever you want. Say hi. Uh, please, you can email us or message us on Facebook or Instagram. Uh, also, help us grow by recommending us to family and friends. Tell them we're on uh, iTunes, we're on Spotify, Stitcher, Google, all the ones that we need to be on. All right. Uh, I think we got everything right. Yeah. All right. Um, do you have anything else, Dad? No, I'm good. All right. Well, how about you, Professor? Gentlemen, after learning about these wonderful sled dogs, I think it would be interesting if you came to the savannah, I got all of my cousins together, and we would pull you on a sled. Ooh, it would be so fast. That well, actually kind of sounds fun. It would be it would be a lot faster, but for a lot shorter amount of time. Yeah. After about two, a minute you or go, two, you go a mile. I'm you, done. You guys would, yeah. They all those cheetahs would need to take long breaks. <laughs> cheetahs just don't work the same. But yeah, maybe we need to start training them. It would be a wonder. It'd be a really fun minute or two, yeah. like a roller coaster with yeah. seventy mile an hour. Right. Well, thanks for the offer, there, Professor. <laughs> This is Force of Nature Podcast. Thank you for joining us. Tell your friends, be a part of building us up, and we will see you next time. Bye.